chapter 15, 11 to 32. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're able to join us online. Uh, last Sunday was a bit of an ordinary, uh, out of the ordinary Sunday. And today as well will also be uh, a bit of an out of the ordinary Sunday. Um, we, we preach maybe once or twice. No, we preach once every year or once every two years regarding our church name and our church vision. And so today I'll be preaching on our church vision statement. 
So starting 2009, for those of you who are not very familiar with our church history, about 12 years ago, this very community adopted the name New Philadelphia Church. And the vision statement for this church was, anybody here in the room remember? The vision statement of New Philadelphia Church? The old one, yes. Raising up an army. Yes, from a valley of dry bones, raising up an army. And so for years, this is what characterized New Philadelphia Church. In a good way, there was a passion and there was an intensity to our community. There was a really strong sense of purpose and a really strong sense of obedience. But in a not so good way, and increasingly so as time wore on, it became a very military-like Uh, community in theology and in culture. We were given marching orders and there were no questions, just execution. There was more function and less relationship. There was more performance and less vulnerability. There was more fear and less love. And most tragically, there was more legalism and less Jesus. And this is what, over time, led us to major transition three years ago, where the ground fell from under our feet, and we entered into a long season of healing, of realigning, of regrouping, and also re-evaluating who we are as a church. And about two years ago, when the dust was starting to settle, we went through a season of re-examining ourselves and praying for clarity regarding our vision statement. And after much prayer, many meetings, much deliberation, I introduced the new vision statement to the church. And it is calling all to the feast. And it's more than just a tagline or a catchy phrase. It embodies what God has first done in us and what he'll do through us. How he's taken us by the hand and led us through a season of learning to feast on the merciful reality of the gospel, to feast on his presence that has been sufficient for us, and leading us to finally taste and see that he is good. So as we look at today's passage read to us by Tami, a parable that maybe for many of us, especially those of us who have grown up in the church, this passage might seem a bit over-familiar, and maybe a bit overplayed, but my desire is that God would open up the scriptures to us and we'd hear the invitation for us to feast afresh. And so today's message is titled, New Philadelphia Calling All to the Feast. New Philadelphia Calling All to the Feast. So I might quiz you guys at the very end of today's sermon I'm going to ask you, what is our new vision statement as of two years ago? And it is calling all to the feast. Now, there are many things that as Tommy was reading this passage for us, there are many things that hit home for me as I heard this passage. And usually when people hear this passage, they identify very strongly with either the elder son or the younger son. We have elder son type people and we have younger son type people. Now, just by show of hands here, people in the room, we have a, a bit of people here in the room who here is an elder son type. 
Okay, that looks about right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Are you sure? Togi? <laughs> How about younger son type? Younger son type. Younger son? I'm pretty sure you're younger son type. How about uh, on, our, <laughs> on our live stream? Uh, do we have any elder son type people? I am already thinking of a few names of a few people that I know should be typing out something. No, no, I'm not going to call you out by name. It is, you volunteer your name. This is how it works. Um, and I also know some very younger son type people. I also have a few people in mind as well. But in my case, I don't know if the case is that I am a middle child. Are there any middle children? Is that the plural of it? Middle children? I don't, I've never heard that before. Middle child people here? Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay, that makes so much sense. Yes, I don't know if it's because I'm a middle child, but there are many ways in which I identified with the, the elder son, and there's also many ways that I identify with the younger son. Um. I have, you know, for those of you guys who don't know my family, I have two brothers, uh, an older brother and a younger brother, and we are relatively close in age. And growing up, there would be times where I fit right into the elder son model. I grew up as a goody two-shoes, I was a straight-A student, played piano for the church choir, doesn't get any more churchy than that. I taught children's ministry, I was a teacher's pet, I never got into drugs and sex, and I tried to never disappoint my parents. Now, none of these things are bad. In fact, I believe my testimony is, <laughs> is one of God's keeping grace. I believe my testimony is one where God kept me from a lot of things that might have derailed my life. And I tried my very best to be a good person. But there was a part of me that would come out when I felt like someone else was being unfairly favored, when someone I believed who, quote-unquote, deserved less, would get a greater reward, I'd feel resentment in my heart. Like that get-out-of-jail-free card, like that free pass, it, that was somehow unfairly placing someone beneath me on equal footing, right? Like my efforts... And my sacrifices were somehow swept over and devalued. Like, for example, if I had studied all night to earn my grade and someone else didn't, but got shown a lot of grace, I felt offended. I felt like that's not fair. And I liked justice when it served me only. That's when I was all about justice. That's when I was all about fairness. And so in many ways, I was very much an elder son type of person. And at the same time, there were many ways in which I also see myself in the younger son. There's a part of me, somewhere deep within, that equates good with boring and bad with fun. Somewhere deep within me. I always felt like I needed to break out of people's expectations of me. So, for example, I was the only girl, and I had two brothers. So if I felt like somebody said, hey, you can't do that because you're a girl, I felt like I had to prove them that they were wrong. 
I felt like I had to go out of my way to prove them wrong. I was also, you know, a Korean-Chilean, very random combination, I know. I was a Korean-Chilean raised in an American education system, and so I felt like I never really could fit a mold. In Chile, I was too Korean. In America, I was too Chilean. In Korea, I am too American, which out of all three, I am not American. And there was always deep inside me a part that wanted to act out, to show them wrong, to want to make it out on my own, I wanted to be reckless and just do what I wanted to do. So in many ways, I was a younger son type person, but with less guts, if that makes any sense. I was the younger son minus the guts to ask for my inheritance, minus the guts to leave off for a far country. I was like a younger son, but held back by a fear of failure, like someone with a younger son heart, but an elder son lifestyle. So I don't know about you, but when I think about these two types of people, I picture themselves very differently. So I don't know, the elder son, I imagine them, okay, they have a steady, well-paying job. They have a mortgage. They have a loving wife. They have two kids and a dog, maybe. Clean-cut hair, clean-shaven face, no debt, calls his parents on holidays, saves money for a rainy day and steadily makes his way up the corporate ladder. That's the way that I picture an elder son type person. And how I picture a younger son type person, I picture like disheveled hair, a few tattoos, maybe some piercings, maybe a drinking habit, a few short-term odd jobs, frequently changing addresses, has lost friends over time, over money loaned, has lost relationships over allegations of cheating. That's the kind of picture that I have in my mind of a young son type person. Now, they are polar opposites in many ways, and they couldn't be more different. But as different as they sound and as different as we picture them in our minds, they are actually more similar than we think. As different as they are, both the sons resented the father. One felt like the father was holding him back. The other felt like the father didn't care for him like he cared for his younger brother. Both felt like they could truly be happy away from the father. One with his father's money in a far-off land, and one with his father's money but nearby. And both negotiated in their hearts and resigned to live the life of a servant instead of a full-fledged son. As different as these two types of people are, And as different as you think you are from somebody, your complete polar opposite, you have more similarities with someone on the opposite extreme than you think. Because in many ways, and this is my first point, we are all the rebellious son. We are all the rebellious son. We have this suspicion in the back of our minds, the father is holding out on me. He's cheating me out of something that I rightfully deserve. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When, hey, did God really say, you know, that that you shouldn't eat of this tree? And the, the suspicious was planted. And this was the idea. Oh, God's holding out on me. I could actually be like God. He's denying me something that's good. He doesn't want me to partake in this because I'm going to be the same as him. So he's holding out on me. Now, how often have we thought that true fulfillment, 
true happiness, true success is only found far away from the Father. Let me pose this hypothetical question to you. If you could have all of God's blessings in your life, financial stability, you know, a great family, a flourishing career, you know, health, you could have all these things that are God's blessings. If you could have all these things that are God's blessings, but without God, without his presence, Without this thing of like, man, do I have to go to church? Man, do I have to be moral in my decision making? Man, do I have to do this Bible thing? Man, do I have to be kind and forgiving to others? If we could, you know, not do that part and still get all of God's blessings, still get all of the benefits of being in in a relationship with God, would we take that opportunity? Would that be sufficient for us? Because that is exactly what the younger son did. He took his inheritance, and in his mind, he thought, I can do better than here. I can do better than being with the Father. I'm going to take all these blessings and go to a far-off land. If we could have God's blessing and God's provision without God, how many of us would take that? We are far more like the younger son than we think. Also, how often have we found ourselves in a place in our lives when we repented honestly before God, but not necessarily because we've sinned and we've grieved God's heart, but because we've reaped the consequences of our wrongdoing, where sin catches up to other, uh, with us, our lives go into a tailspin, And then, and only then, we realize how much we need God. Isn't this what happens with a younger son? And isn't this what happens often in our lives? If we could sin and get away with it, if we could sin and not have to reap the consequences of our sin, would we stay away from sin? I don't know. The incentive all of a sudden has majorly decreased. If the younger son had never gone hungry, if he had never found himself in a place where he's broke and nobody is able to give him a lending hand, lend him a helping hand, if that point had never been reached, would he have turned back and gone back to the father? The portrait that we see of this younger son hitting rock bottom, it hits home for us. Because whether we like to admit it or not, or whether our lives look like the younger sons or not, we have a lot more in common with the younger son than we think. Even if we are upright, even if we are moral, even if we are a straight-A student, even if we are a goody-two-shoes, we have a lot more in common with the younger son than we think. We, in some ways, are all that younger son, that rebellious son, that believes life would be so much better if only we could get away from the Father. Life would be so much more fun and accomplishing and satisfying if only we could get away from the Father. We are all that rebellious son. Now, the second truth that we get from this passage is that we are also all the religious son. We are all this religious son. This is... A going off to a far land kind of heart, but in a more subtle way. 
Do you know that you can stay home but be far off in your heart? You begin to get hard-hearted. You begin to feel used. You begin to just go through the motions. You know how you need to act, how you need to talk, how you need to play the part, but your heart becomes distant. And being good, quote-unquote, isn't a joy. Staying with the Father and laboring in the fields isn't out of love. It's the price you begrudgingly pay in order to get what you actually want. It is a cost and a sacrifice that you are willing to pay in order to get what you actually want. And we hear what the elder son wanted all along towards the very end of the passage, where he says, all I wanted was to have a party with my friends. I wanted my friends. I don't know about you, Father, but I wanted a party, just me and my friends. That's all I had wanted. And so what he wants is the same as his younger brother, essentially. It's the same. What he wants is his father's wealth to be spent on him and his friends and not the father. So although he is a full-fledged son, and although he is someone who didn't go to a far-off land, who didn't demand his inheritance, very much like the rebellious son, this older son, was settling for something different. He was settling for the life of a servant. He was settling for the life of someone who was working for the father, but his heart was far from him. And with this example, with this type of person, I know I identify all too well with that. I know that I can go through the motions. I know that I can, quote unquote, use God to get my way, use God to get what I really want. I know that I can get embittered and I can get um, offended when he shows undue mercy on someone else who I feel doesn't deserve it, especially if it comes at a cost to myself. I am that religious. All right. Sorry about that. Brief technical difficulty. Everybody, including myself in the room, just like jolted. I think that was the Holy Spirit bringing in the conviction. All of us are this religious son. All of us have this idea, man, he's holding out on me. He doesn't want to celebrate me. He is waiting for the younger son and he favors his younger son. And what about me? There's so much comparison There's so much bitterness. There's so much unforgiveness. Whether or not he verbalizes it up until that last moment. And if we are not careful, that very easily can become a picture of our spiritual walk. If you've been a Christian for a very long time, you know that you go through seasons where you begin to feel a bit prideful, a bit arrogant, like whatever blessings you're getting, you fully deserve. And when you get to that point, you need to know that you are very quickly becoming that elder religious son. You are working the fields far away from the father. 
not rejoicing about the things that the Father rejoices in, going through the motions and hoping that someday the reward, the reward will come. But it's not the Father. And it's not laboring with Him. It's not caring about the things He cares about. It's not feeling the love of the Father. So in many ways, you and I can identify with a younger rebellious son. We have things in us that propel us and want to move us into going far away from the Lord. And there's many ways that we are that religious son, that elder son, where we can stay, quote-unquote, close to God, but not really be close to Him, to go through the motions and to still get what it is that we actually want out of the Father. But here is the turning point, and here's the hope that we all have in Christ. We are all the rebellious son, we are all the religious son, but we are all nonetheless invited to the Father's table. We are all nonetheless invited to the Father's table, whether you feel like you identify more with the younger son or the elder son. The Father's gracious words are, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Younger son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Elder son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The father says this to the younger son as he clothes him in robes and puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and invites him into a feast. And he says this also to the elder son as he goes out to him from outside of the feast where the elder son is publicly humiliating the father by refusing to go in. The father in his loving kindness and in his mercy invites both the religious and the rebellious to his feast. The father bears the humiliation and the shame that is put upon him by both the religious and the rebellious. He takes that brunt upon himself, and he nonetheless invites you and I into the father's feast. Now we have a misconception regarding religious people and rebellious people. I'm just going to show you a graphic. I'm going to show you a graphic. There you go. We often think in terms of a spectrum. So on one end, there's the rebellious person, the person who breaks all the rules, the person who lives and enjoys breaking those rules. And then on the opposite extreme, are the religious people, people who are, you know, by the book, people who are law-abiding, people who do as they're told and they live upright lives. And we think that it's a spectrum. And then somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the balance, there's a sweet spot. We're like, okay, I can't be too rebellious and I can't be too religious. So I kind of have to make my way into that sweet spot in the middle. And that's where I need to live in that little sweet spot between rebellious and religious. But what we hear from this passage is actually a very different message. It tells us that whether we are rebellious or religious, we are in the wrong. And the only way, the only hope that we have outside of that is the gospel. It is a completely different 
thing. It's in a different order. It's not in a sliding scale. It's not within a spectrum. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we need to cling to the gospel. Doesn't matter where you land on that sliding scale between rebellious and religious. We all need to lay those things down and embrace the forgiveness and the mercy that is given to us by the Father. The main point of this parable, it isn't, hey, being a younger son is better. At least he wasn't stiff and angry in a goody two-shoes. That's not the point of this message. And it also isn't, hey, being an elder son type is better. At least he didn't squander half of his father's property and have to come back begging for mercy. That is not the point of this parable. The main point is we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We all deserve death. We all deserve wrath. We all deserve to be stripped of our family title, stripped of our family robes, our family ring. We deserve to be left outside, starving, reaping the consequences of our actions. We all used the Father, and we all offended the Father. We all publicly humiliated the Father. And yet, God, in His mercy, He washed us of our sins, whether it be sins of rebellion or sins of religion. He restored us into right relationship. He himself bore the, uh, the full brunt of the cost of the offense. And instead of giving us as our sins deserved, he not only killed the fatted calf for our homecoming, he gave up his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that we would be restored. And this is the gospel message. The feast that awaits for us both for the religious and for the rebellious. It is the Father's way of celebrating that those who were once dead are now alive. Those who were lost are now found. And one day, not too long from now, at the end of our days, after a long journey back to the Father, we will sit at his table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where there will be great rejoicing. As we, God's sons and daughters, not servants, God's full-fledged sons and daughters, as we reach our final destination. We would have been content with pig's food. We would have been content with a servant's ration. And instead of that, God, in his mercy and in his kindness, he has prepared a table for us, a feast for us, so that we don't need to live the life of a resigned servant, a resigned slave, but we have been brought into God's family and given a seat at the table. And so from that place of tasting God's goodness and grace, of knowing just how deep the gospel goes for us, from that place, we as a community, we as New Philly, we can cling on to our church vision statement, what it means to call all to the feast. There's three different things that this means. When we talk about calling all to the feast, the first thing that we talk about is that we need to be feasting on God together. 
That is the great commandment. And there is no Christian that is exempt from this. No church that is exempt from this. You and I are called first and foremost to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love one another as you love yourself. It doesn't matter what kind of church you go to. It doesn't matter what kind of theology you adhere to. If you are a Christian, this is something that you're called to do. You're called to love the Lord and to love one another. This is what it looks like to feast on God together. It's not saying you're called to obey the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is not, hey, you're called to you know, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. All of those things are included in what it means to love. You're called to love the Lord your God. With all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. This is what it means to not just obey God and not just be a servant. You're called to give him your heart. You're called to feast on him. Know that he is good. Know that he is with you. And you cannot do that without a personal relationship with him. If Christianity is just a religion that you adhere to, but not a living, breathing, dynamic relationship with a God who isn't dead, who isn't just in some old dusty pages, but a God who is alive right now, then you are called to feast on God. You're called to know that he is good today in your life. This is what it means to feast on God together. This is what it means for us to gather together as a community. When we gather together and we sing his praises and we share our testimonies and we pray for one another, we are feasting on God together. We are gathering at the table with God and with one another and feasting upon that meal that he has prepared for us. The second thing. When it comes to calling all to the feast, we can't just keep this joy to ourselves. We can't just keep this message to ourselves. But we are called to engage in the Great Commission. We are called to not just be content with sitting at the table and getting our bellies full, but we're called to invite others to the feast if we truly believe that God is that good. If we truly believe that this message is true, then we are called to invite others to the feast. There's nothing more contagious when we talk about God than if we have feasted ourselves, if we have sat at that table, if we have tasted and seen his goodness, if we've seen his work, uh, his work in our lives, his hand at work in our community, and then go out and talk to others about it and invite them into this feast. Many of us find ourselves in this community because somebody else invited us here. Somebody else took the time to share their testimony, to invite us to his feast. Someone had to talk to us about the gospel. Someone had to reach out to us. Somebody had to have mercy and compassion on us in order for us to find ourselves here today. And so calling all to the feast is not just about sitting at the table and gorging ourselves in what God has done. From that place, we are called to invite others to the feast. This means that when Uh, Our gatherings are done and we go to our homes and we go to our workplaces. The gospel goes forward. That is the moment of invitation. That is the opportunity that we've been given for us to invite others to this feast. And lastly, calling all to the feast. It's not just the feast that we get to feast on today, spiritually, in our daily walk. We're also called to prepare for the end times feast. The feast of all feasts. 
We're called not just to adhere to the great commandment in loving God and loving one another. We're not only called to engage in the great commission and inviting others to the feast. We're also called to await with a burning heart for the great return of our God. This is what it means for us to be a church that calls all to the feast. A feast that in many ways wasn't prepared by us. It wasn't paid for by us. It was prepared for by the Father. And all we need to do is come up to the table, feast on him together, and then invite others to the feast. The great commandment, the great commission, and the great return. This is what it means to call all to the feast. Whether we've lived a life of rebellious running away from God, of self-sabotaging and squandering the inheritance and the gifts that God has given us as a younger son, or whether we've lived a full life of religious uprightness and arrogance, secretly holding a grudge against the father, secretly holding a grudge against a younger brother that seems to, quote-unquote, get away with it scot-free. Whether we are religious or whether we are rebellious, God calls us to come to the feast and come today. Now, let me end with this as we get ready for a time of partaking in communion together. It occurred to me a couple of days ago that although I didn't plan it this way, I didn't plan the timeline of it this way, last week I preached in the name New Philadelphia Church about how God has given us an open door, how he's doing a new thing if only we'd perceive it. And it just happened to be that it was Rosh Hashanah. It was the new year in the Jewish calendar the very next day. There was a new momentum. There's a newness of heart. It is most definitely a new season. We just relaunched our house churches. We relaunched our website and our logo. And to top it off, last night, I announced to people who join us for Vision and Prayer Night that we are moving at the end of October. After much prayer and searching, God opened up a door for us to find a place that we can call home. And it was a huge, a long story. It was a huge blessing that came out of the blue but it is indeed a season where god is opening up a door for us in his perfect timing the odds were stacked against us our finances weren't doing us any favors and in the midst of that god opened up a divine door of supernatural favor and today we are talking about our church vision statement calling all to the feast, what it means to come to the banqueting table that has been paid for and prepared for by the Father at such a high cost. And it is perfect that in just a few days, this upcoming Thursday, it is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar. This was the one day in the year when Israelites would gather and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of sacrifice. He would approach the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God dwelt and he'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the sake of the sins of the nation. 
It was a sober acknowledgement that they had fallen short and they needed the blood of an unblemished sacrifice in order to secure the mercy of a righteous God over unrighteous people. It was a time to purify their hearts and get right with God. And maybe it is also so with us today. So today we're going to end with a time of partaking in communion. We're you know, not doing this in a traditional way. We're just having people join us online. But as we partake in communion together and as we remember the cost, what the Father paid in order for us to come to that table, we have no choice. We have no option but to rejoice in His goodness and His grace. He has clothed us with robes of righteousness. He has put sandals on our feet. He has put a ring on our fingers. He has welcomed us back home, and He has set a table and a feast before us.